So, last week was about how godly fa- families function. That was explained by going over the role of the husband, the role of the wife, and then the role of the children. And on that, the first thing we went over was the role of the husband. Focusing on headship. So what does it mean for a husband to be the head of the family? Talks about how that means to be captain or chief. That they're appointed by God to cultivate and protect their families. That comes from Genesis chapter 2, where Adam's commanded to tend and keep the garden. We also talked about that men lead their families by setting an example of selfless devotion to serve and obey the word of God. And they lead their families well by taking charge and bringing instruction and discipline to their children. We're going to be talking about that instruction and discipline today uh, for this teaching. And the role of the wife, we defined what it means for a wife to be a helper, that that means aid and supporter, according to the Hebrew word, uh, that it was made to help Adam accomplish these tasks of cultivating and protecting their household. Uh, Women help their husbands through taking on management of the home and of their children, while the husband focuses on his work. We talked about that women help their husbands by taking up tasks for the physical gain of the family that the husband can't handle himself. Uh, and that they help also by uh, being submitted to their husbands uh, and, and serving him. We looked at a few examples of women who practiced that well. One of them was Abigail in First Samuel. And then we looked at a couple of verses from Proverbs 31 as well. Then on the role of children, we talked about uh, focusing on Psalm 127, where it says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So we defined what that means. Uh, And we focused on that parents are only stewards of those who are truly God's children. Uh, So your children ultimately belong to God, and you're you're stewarding them. They're ultimately not yours. Um, And then we finished with that children are to be trained to be obedient to authority and to God, to be educated in the word, and to be disciplined and wise. Uh, And that's what we're raising them into. For today, which is part two of this kind of family dynamic series, we're going to be going over... Uh, the basic a basic theology of sin and then how that applies to children how they're raised and how they're disciplined by theology of sin what I mean by that is when does a person become a sinner look at that Uh, and when are they accountable for their sin some people would call that the age of accountability and then after we have identified that and explained it clearly, then we have to talk about, okay, so then at what age is discipline for children important? And how do you how do you encourage repentance and ultimately salvation in a child? And the probably biggest surprise or biggest shock that may or may not be from this teaching is that children are capable of sinning and being held accountable for their sin a lot younger than we think. And that means discipline for them is critically important a lot younger than we think as well. So that's going to be what we'll go over. So this is, of course, applicable for those of you who have your own children, but also if you know people who have children or if you have had children in your past, this is a great thing to know because you can help a lot of other parents um, through this kind of teaching as well. So make sure you pay close attention to the scriptures because those are going to be what we'll focus on. And if you get these in your heart, it'll really help uh, for moving forward in the future. Is Dad here? Okay, so we will get started with point number one. We're answering the first question of, are children innocent of sin? And the answer is no, and I will look at a point and then some scriptures. So 
Children are not innocent of sin. The Bible says that all of us have a tendency towards evil and foolishness in our nature from childhood. I put that in quotes because it's from Genesis, but we'll look at the Proverbs 22.15 first. first. So let's go there. Proverbs chapter 22 in verse 15. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So before we talk about the rod of correction more, that will come later. We're just focusing on the first half of the verse that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Keep that in mind. Go to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. Starting in verse 21, Genesis 8 says, And the Lord God smelled a soothing aroma. This is right after the flood of Noah. Noah makes an offering to God. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So we're, of course, going to focus on the part where he says, although the imagination, that can mean the thought or intent of man's heart, this is mankind, humankind in general, is evil from his youth. If you look at a few different translations of this, one is New Living Translation, says that the imagination of man's heart is evil from childhood. The Hebrew word means from the time you're a little bitty child, the imagination of your heart is evil. Now, typically, when you look at children, especially those who are really, really little children, you don't look at them and think, you know, that's evil, of course, you know. Um, But it's the heart that's important, and God always looks at the heart. And we can't make the mistake of looking at the outward innocence of children, because according to God, in both Proverbs and Genesis, foolishness and evil are what children are bent towards from the time they're very, very, very young. That's just simply a truth that we have to keep in mind as a foundation for this. Uh, The next point on the outline is that we are born with a fallen nature that drives us towards sin even from birth. So we'll look at Psalms for that. Psalms 51 is what we'll read first. Psalm 51, verse 5. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This basically says that conception itself, so from the time you are 
first considered physically alive, which is at the moment of conception, there's sin, which is kind of hard to imagine. But the womb, and of course a child that's conceived there, is not immune from sin in the sense that the body that they take on, the body that's formed in the womb, and the mind that's formed in the womb, is still fallen. Romans 8 says that the body is dead because of sin. So from the moment you're conceived, you're, you're conceived with a fallen nature that's in your mind and body. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep, that's what we're dealing with here. That original sin, of course, starts with Adam. But when Adam sinned, he then has, from that point forward, transmitted that fallen nature to every single human who's born after him. You know, So from the moment of conception, there's sin in your mind and body. And that's why Proverbs and Genesis say the imagination and thought of a person's heart is evil from the time they're a little child because they're born with that bend. That's, it's what's natural to human beings. So then let's go to Psalm 58. Similar idea, but a little bit stronger language. Psalm 58. We'll look at verse 3. It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born. Speaking lies. Now, the wicked as far as God is concerned, is really anyone who's not saved <laughs> because we're considered sinners without the grace of God. And it says that that wickedness and that estrangement in sin begins with birth. Psalm 51 says conception. So conception to birth, you have a fallen nature. And you start to see that in children as soon as they're old enough to choose sin. But the nature we're born with is, of course, fallen. So keep that in mind. This is super important as we move forward. Okay, let's go to number two here. The next question that comes up from this is, can a child truly and knowingly sin? And the answer is yes. Children, even little children, are morally intelligent even if they aren't intellectually intelligent. This is really important because you don't have to be intellectually intelligent in order to have the ability to sin. You can have the most basic brain function and still choose sin. And that's what we call moral intelligence. And we'll define that a little bit more as we move forward. First thing we have to talk about on that is what is sin? This is that next bullet point. Sin is not held against you if you don't know right and wrong. That would be law. We'll look at Romans 5 for that. So turn to Romans 5.13. Romans chapter 5. In verse 13. Says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, that means recorded or held against you, when there is no law. Basic principle. Sin can, t can still exist, 
but it can be held against you if you don't know what the law is. So if you don't, if you're not conscious of what right and wrong is, you still sin, but it's you're not held accountable for it. That's the basic principle here. So this brings us back to what we talked about in the previous point with children being born with a fallen nature. So if they're estranged and have foolishness bound up in their heart and their imagination is evil from childhood, and Psalms 51 and 58 says even from conception and birth, then does that mean they're held accountable for being born with a fallen nature? Well, of course not, because they don't have any consciousness of law yet. But as soon as you become conscious of law, which is right and wrong, now you're held accountable. So if a child is, you know, born and let's say they, you know, die in the womb or shortly after birth or whatever the situation might be, because they're not old enough to be conscious of right and wrong, the sin or the fallen nature they're born with is not held against them and they would enter the kingdom of God or heaven on God's mercy because they weren't conscious of law yet. But as soon as you become conscious, that's when the situation changes, which we'll get into next. Finish reading on this point. Once you do know whether an action is right or wrong, you have law and you are capable of sin in terms of action, acting in a sinful way. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 4, says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This is how John defines, defines sin. Lawlessness simply means breaking a law. That's what sin is. If a person is sinning, they're violating a law, which would be violating right and wrong. The next point also underlined is that as soon as a child becomes aware of any form of right and wrong, he is now aware of the law in his conscience and he's capable of sinning. Lawlessness, as John defines it, is sin. So if a child knows the law in his conscience, he can sin. That's the principle here. In other words, that that he's that sin is now imputed to him or held against him, as as Romans five defines it. I don't have this in the outline, but if you guys know the some of the contents of Romans chapter two, Romans chapter two talks about how people who don't have the word of God like the Jews had, which would be Gentiles, even it says even if they never read the scriptures they can be condemned on the basis of the law of God they have in their conscience, which is their awareness of right and wrong, even though they never read the Bible. It, it goes the same way for a child. They might not have ever read the Bible, nor do they have the ability to understand the Bible because they don't have the intellectual intelligence for that yet, but they do have the moral intelligence and ability to be aware when something's wrong and do it anyway. And that makes them just as guilty as an adult that has never read the Bible, because moral intelligence happens very, very young. So that we have to keep that in mind. Next section, that's going to be number three here. So let's get to the specific question. When is a child old enough to go to hell? That would be old enough to be condemned. Or in other words, what is the age of accountability? 
as soon as you're old enough to choose sin, you're old enough to go to hell. Here's why. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. If you can sin, the penalty is death, which in context of Romans 6 would mean condemnation, going to hell. That's the penalty for all sin. Whether you've sinned once or have had a lifetime of sin, without repentance, which is a change of heart, all people who have sin will be condemned for it. All who have sinned will die. Look at Romans chapter 5 again. We'll look at verse 12. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death, which is condemnation, spread to all men because all sinned. So, being condemned is as simple as having sinned. It doesn't doesn't tell us how many times you have to sin before you'll die for it. It just says, all have sinned, therefore death or condemnation has spread to all men. So, if a child has sinned, then death has spread to them. They're under condemnation even if it was one time. Now, this brings us to one more scripture, and then we'll look at the next point. And so we'll turn to Ezekiel for that. But a question that comes up is, okay, well, is God really that, you know, so to speak, angry at sin, that you can sin one time, even if it's really simple? Like, let's say a child knows mom and dad said not to touch that, and then touch it anyway, you know. Right, you might think, okay, you know, why would God, why would God make, yeah, strict, yeah, why would God be, be so strict as to have a child be condemned for something that's not necessarily a, at least as in terms of how most people view it, a moral violation, like the child's not stealing or lying or murdering anybody, it's not like he's breaking one of the Ten Commandments, at least in a way that we would define it, um, so, and there is an answer to that that comes from the story of Adam and Eve, which we'll get into. But before we do, I wanted to read this verse in Ezekiel. Yeah, go for it. Um, yep. Like, I don't know if you will get into this, but I was wondering, like, let's say at the age of accountability, does come, child does die. Mm-hmm. What, like, what type of, like, parenting should change when you know the child is at that age of accountability? Should things change? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We'll get into that. Okay. We will. Yep, that'll come later. Okay, so Ezekiel chapter 18 in, let's actually start in verse 19. We'll get a little bit more context there. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. Verse 20 starts with this, is the key principle. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So this is important because, and I I mentioned this earlier, if, or because, excuse me, because a child is born with a sinful nature, he's inheriting sin from his parents, right? So, and as God says here, 
a child will not be held accountable for the sin of his parents. So a child can't go to hell for inheriting a sinful nature because all of us were born with that. The only time you're deserving of condemnation is when you yourself choose sin. That's why it says every soul individually that chooses sin shall die for it. So if God knows that a child or anybody has chosen sin, they have now reached the point where they deserve condemnation for that. But you will not die for what you inherited from your parents. It's only your choice. Yes. So sin is inherited from the parents. Mm-hmm. So this is just kind of Mary. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit, Mary, was was sinful. But she we couldn't have that inherited to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So when I say parents, biblically, it's specifically the father that passes the sinful nature uh, because Romans 5 says because of Adam's sin, death spread to all men. So the, the father is the one who gives the seed and the seed is what passes sin. So a mom, te- you know, if we're getting really specific on the theology, technically a mom alone doesn't give sin to her children. It's the father, basically. Um, yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. That's where we get the Greek word from. Right. That would be incorrect. All have sinned. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, but good question. So now let's get into the point number four about, you know, a, a basic disobedience that's not necessarily a extreme moral violation. Is that sin that's serious enough to deserve condemnation? So we're going to talk about Adam's fall. So the emboldened point uh, number four here. Adam's fall proves that even basic disobedience deserves condemnation. Condemnation. To the bullet point, Adam and Eve did not die, that's spiritually, for committing murder, for lying, for stealing, none of that. They died for a single act of basic disobedience. Go to Romans 5 again. And we're, we're all aware of this because when you read the story of the fall of man in Genesis, God didn't say, you know, you shall not murder. As long as you don't murder, you won't die. All he said was, here's a tree. Don't eat from it. Was there anything about the nature of that tree that God said was bad? No. The tree, the fruit on the tree, there's nothing evil about it. Not not at all. The only thing that made that action wrong or sinful was that God said, don't eat from it. That's it. So sin to God is not doing something unclean or doing something that's defiled. Sin to God is just doing anything he told you not to do. Even if he told you don't touch that flower. If God said it, and you do it, it's sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Like, what will it do? You know? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We get too curious. Yeah. Yep. They they actually know they didn't know what death was. Um, that's why God called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the Hebrew word for knowledge there means experiential knowledge. So basically what he was saying was, if you disobey, you will experience evil, which is what death is. And before that, they didn't know evil or death. They just knew what good was. So it's they're getting curious about, I wonder what happens or what, I wonder what it's like to be disobedient. And that's actually a big motivator for children sometimes. It's like, my parents said not to do this. Well, why? I wonder what's going to happen if I do. You know, like that curiosity is actually part of sin, you know. So it's, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty serious. But okay, so Romans 5.19, which I said we would read, uh, says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. The key word is disobedience. It doesn't say by one man's eating from an evil tree, many were made sinners. It just simply says disobedience. That's all that it is. There's a lot of people that you will talk to who have problems with the story of Genesis who will object to that by saying or asking, why would God create an evil tree? Why would he put the tree there? Well, the problem wasn't the tree. Again, there's nothing about the tree that was evil. God didn't create an evil tree. He just put something in place to represent a choice to obey God or not. That's all that it is. Represents a choice. The choice to disobey something God says is sin. That's lawlessness. Violating something God said. The choice to obey something God said is righteousness. It's really that simple. So, on that standard, if we keep reading on the outline here, doesn't matter whether it's ex- it, whether it's as extreme as murder or as elementary as touching something you're told not to touch. Disobedience is disobedience. The subpoint: If God had to condemn Adam for a single act of disobedience, then He certainly also has every right to condemn us for our disobedience. And since every child chooses disobedience or doing something mom and dad told him not to do, he is automatically condemned until he learns repentance. Really important principle here. Now, another objection might be, well, you know, the child's not necessarily disobeying God. It's not like they're aware of something God said. But what they are aware of is something mom and dad said. And one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. So if you're violating a Ten Commandment, you're violating God's law. One of them is to honor your parents. And parents, mom and dad, represent God to their children. So you're, you're standing in God's place for that child until they're old enough to be aware of God, conscious of God. So if they choose to disobey their authority, which at the time is their parents, who represent God, that is disobeying God. Because God is the one who said, honor your father and mother. So they're just as guilty of disobeying God directly by disobeying their parents. Because 
God is the one who put the law in place to obey your parents. I think that's one of the first things kids learn is obedience is better than disobedience. I mean, they yeah. know, they know when they did something wrong. They do. Yeah. yeah. They're aware of it. At a very young age. Yep. So number five now, just like adults, you can identify whether a child is saved or not based on their fruit. What should be their actions? Look at Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. And we will look at verse 11. We're going to focus especially on the first part of the phrase. Proverbs 20 verse 11 says... Ooh, actually, we should start in verse 9. Yeah, that'll be helpful. So Proverbs 20, verse 9, if you start there, it says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, or I am pure from my sin? In other words, nobody can say they don't have sin. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Verse 11, Even a child is known by what? His deeds his actions, whether what he does is pure and right. Even a child, meaning just like adults, as I wrote here, just like adults, you can identify whether a child is saved or not based on their fruit. What They are known by their deeds. Keep reading on uh, the outline. Therefore, children are not automatically saved. If they can sin... We talked about what that means. Until they have repentance, they're unsaved and an unbeliever. You need to see your children as unbelievers who need salvation if you're ever going to be effective in bringing them to repentance. So you can't look at your kids and see them as totally pure and innocent creatures. We just read in Proverbs, it says, who can say I've made my heart clean and I'm pure from sin? Nobody can say that. So your children can't either. So you have to see them as unsaved if you're ever going to be effective at bringing them to repentance. Okay, so number six, this is where we get into what you do about it. Which uh, we'll get into answering your question, Sophia. So one thing that's just as an observation from uh, Maya and Allie's experience of having our own children that I remember, I have a specific memory of Ada when she was, I think she was seven months old. This might have been the first time. I was trying to remember it last night before I went to bed, but I'm pretty sure this was the first time I became aware of it. When she was seven months old, she was crawling along this wall next to the dinner table. We have a block in the outlet that basically is the doorbell uh, ring uh, device. And she was touching it and trying to grab it off the wall, pull it out of the outlet. And I remember her going and touching it, and we told her no. And she did it again. And came back a little bit later, and I remember her going, crawling up to the thing again, starting to reach for it, and looking at us, right? And she hesitated. So that moment, she's seven months old. Is she sinning? Yes. Because now she's aware of what's right and what's wrong, and she's choosing rebellion. Now, she might, she might as well have been Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
It's the same thing. She's making a choice for disobedience, just like Adam and Eve made a choice for disobedience. So at that age, she's under condemnation. And if she were to die, she would be condemned for it. Even at that age, because she has chosen sin and all who have sinned shall die. That's what scripture says, right? So number six, so here's, here's what parents have to do about it. Cause you don't really have to be all that aware of this until a child is old enough to choose sin. So for Ada, that was about seven months old. And there's probably, it probably varies a little bit here and there, depending on the child. But you really have to step it up when it comes to discipline once they reach that age. So the point for number six is uh, physical discipline. I'm supposed to say will bring a child to salvation fastest or physical discipline brings a child to salvation fastest. Let's look at Proverbs again, chapter 22 and verse 15. This is one of those Proverbs we started with. Now we're going to look at the second half of the verse. It says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, those who argue for or argue against physical discipline, which would be spanking, they will try to say that the rod of correction doesn't mean a physical rod. It just simply means bringing correction from the word is representative of the rod or the rod represents bringing correction from the word. But that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and I'll explain why. This rod of correction is a physical rod. And the reason why it can't be just representative of the word is because at seven months old, when a child is old enough to sin, they don't have the intellectual intelligence to understand anything from the word. So it can't be bringing correction or verbal discipline is how you bring a child to repentance because they, they don't have the capacity yet to even receive that. What they can understand is physical discipline. Every child gets, okay, that hurt physically when I did this. Now I know I shouldn't do it again. Yeah. Exactly. They don't have the spirit, right? So if they don't have the spirit, then just like an adult, they don't have conviction from the word anyway. Not until the spirit comes into their life, you know? So that's just one point to keep in mind. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, more later. Then uh, chapter 23 of Proverbs. Just turn the page. Chapter 23, starting verse 13. We just read in 22 that the rod, the physical rod of correction, drives foolishness far away from their heart. This says in verse 13, do not withhold correction from a child. Don't hesitate. Don't keep it from them. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. That's just kind of like a point to calm me down a little bit. He's not going to die. <laughs> this is obviously physical. Physical rod. You shall beat with him a rod and what? Beat him with a rod and then it says, and deliver his soul from hell. This is the only verse you will find in the Bible that specifically says how you save a child from hell before they're old enough to understand the gospel. It says with the rod. Because remember that for a, for a person who's old enough to believe the gospel, the rod becomes the word of the gospel that convicts you. The spirit comes in when you get saved, convicts you, and keeps you in repentance. But before you're old enough to receive the spirit and have faith, 
there has to be some kind of correction to bring you to repentance. And because a child isn't old enough for faith or repentance on the basis of faith yet, the rod can teach them repentance. So you'll have the greatest chance. And this is, of course, you know, assuming your child lives, um, you know, God willing, God willing, older than, uh, you know, the time where they can't understand the gospel yet. You have the greatest chance of teaching them repentance and in encouraging them to choose repentance if you're diligent with spanking. Yeah. The fear of the battle. Yep. Yeah. The fear, the fear of the battle. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that because the uh, fear of God, the equivalent of that for a child is actually the fear of the rod, and so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later here. Okay. So the point on the under the bullet point is the again the way that you bring repentance to, to a child is with the rod of correction, which is a correction of physical pain. Physical discipline is great for teaching a child the way of obedience. Because before a child is old and intelligent enough to grasp repentance on the basis of his own faith and understanding of the gospel, he can grasp how to repent on the basis of fear of the pain of physical discipline. If the fear of God, which includes the pain of hell, brings us to repent, then the fear of the rod brings repentance to a child. Proverbs 16 verse 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, a man departs from evil. Again, by the fear of the Lord, a man departs from evil. But before you're old enough to understand the fear of God, you can fear the rod from your parents, specifically. And that can cause a child to depart from evil. You can, you can train them to be obedient this way with the rod of correction. The rod of correction is the child's equivalent to the fear of God. Until, of course, they're old enough to fear God themselves. So another objection that comes up, the next bullet point is, what about the grace of God to save children? So doesn't the gospel include a lot of grace and mercy? Yes, the gospel includes a lot of grace. But grace is only relevant where there is the ability to have faith. So look at Romans 5, verse 2. Romans chapter 5. In verse 2, says, Through whom, that would be through Jesus, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Another popular verse, Ephesians 2, 8, says, For by grace you are saved through faith. So the only way you access grace is if you can have faith. So if a child isn't old enough to have faith, then can they receive grace? No. So why would you try to teach a child repentance through grace when they can't have faith? Biblically, it doesn't make any sense and just simply simply won't work. It won't be effective. Before children are old enough to put faith in Christ, they are protected through the discipline of the law. You cannot use principles of grace through faith for a child as you would for an adult because they are not old enough to understand faith. Until they're older, they only understand the fear of the rod which is, of course, the law. Let's look, like, look at uh, Galatians 3.25. Galatians 
three. Or 23 is where we'll start, excuse me. Galatians 3, verse 23 says, Before faith came. Imagine this in the context of a child. Before a child can have faith, he's kept under guard by the law. That means protected. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So if you think about it this way, the rod is the law. The rod of correction represents the law. That rod is a tutor that trains a child to want to receive Christ when they're old enough to. Because if they understand, sinning brings me pain and faith in Christ will save me from the sin that causes me pain, then they're going to be much quicker to receive the gospel, to receive Christ, because they want repentance. If you've trained them to want repentance through the law. And I love how it says they are kept under guard by the rod or kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. You are keeping, protecting, preserving your child, saving your child for Repentance through faith with the rod of correction. That's what you're doing. Let me skip a few verses later to chapter 4 of Galatians, starting at verse 1. It says, Now I say that the heir, the one who inherits, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master from all, but is kept under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So if you apply this to the context of parenting your children, what, it, what it's trying to say to us as adults is ultimately that before Christ came, before the gospel came, we were no different than slaves in terms of our immaturity. The Israelites, in the specific context, the Israelites did not yet have the understanding of the gospel that would allow them to be saved through faith. So when God gave the law, even though they're heirs of God, they could not receive the gospel. They couldn't receive the full inheritance. So God had to preserve them from sin through the discipline of the law. And it's using using parenting as an analogy because it's trying to say that like if you have a king, a king who has a son and that, that son is going to become the king one day, that king, even though his child is heir to the throne, he can't treat him like a prince yet anyway because he's not old enough to walk in that kind of responsibility. So that child has to be treated just like any other slave, has to be disciplined, has to be ordered, has to be ruled until they're old enough to understand, okay, I got to be a king now, or I got to be a prince now. And that's just a prince, basic principle of maturity, that until a person's mature enough, the way that you raise them is different. The way that you discipline a child has to be much stricter while they're really young, until they reach the age where they can understand, comprehend faith and the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Once they're old enough to get that, then assuming you did it right before this, you'll be able to lighten the load in terms of physical discipline because now if they get saved and they have the spirit, they'll have the spirit to convict them now. 
so the rod won't be as necessary as it was before they were saved because the spirit will do the disciplining for them and so will the word so that was like uh those galatians verses chapter three and four that's great examples of that the uh, uh final sub point under this section just as the discipline of Moses' law kept the Israelites from sin enough for them to be preserved until Christ came with faith, so spanking will preserve a child and prepare them to receive Christ with faith. After faith, there is still discipline, but it won't have to be as often because the Spirit will convict them for you. That's an awesome promise, too, that you can get your 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 child can be saved very young, and it'll make it easier on you because the Spirit will do a lot of work for you. So number seven, you should spank your children more often than you think. So how often? Just to get really practical, how often should we spank? Remember that you are not just bringing discipline to a child for immoral behavior, but for any kind of disobedience or any time your child does something they know is wrong. Every form of disobedience, whether small or big, deserves discipline. Let's look at Hebrews 2.2. 2. Hebrews 2, verse 2, says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and look at this, every transgression and every disobedience received a just reward. Remember, a child is trained under the law, not under grace, because they don't have faith yet. Under the law, every disobedience received a penalty. Every single one. Similar verse, look at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Paul says here, being ready or be ready to punish all disobedience. Then it says when your obedience is fulfilled. If you apply this verse to our practical situation we're discussing here, obedience being fulfilled would simply be bringing understanding of what obedience is to a child. So like when we told Ada when she's seven and she understood it, don't touch that thing on the outlet. That would be obedience has now been fulfilled she knows what it, what it means to obey as soon as she becomes aware of that she can now disobey and that garners a punishment if she chooses that and it says to punish all all disobedience it doesn't matter doesn't matter if it's whining or complaining touching something she's not supposed to touch whatever it might be if once she knows this is wrong and she disobeys there's meant to be a punishment for it So a really good principle of the law that's applicable for a child, you can find in Numbers 15. We'll read that. Almost done here. Uh, Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15, and we will read starting in verse 28. Numbers 15:28 says, "So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally, 
when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven. So like we talked about earlier, unintentional sin for a child could simply be the sin they're born with. Right? That's unintentional. They're, they're not intending to be born with sin when they're born. And there's atonement for that. God shows mercy to that. But then it says, You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. Verse 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously, presumptuously, that means intentionally, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Cut off means that they would be executed. They would die for this. Presumptuous, so that's intentional sin, had a penalty. And that's how you, or this is a principle of the law that can show you how often to bring discipline to your children. If they do something unintentionally, in other words, they don't know that it's wrong yet, there's atonement for it. You don't have to bring discipline. But once they know that something is wrong, discipline is needed, just like it says under the law of Moses. Yeah. Um, should you spank your kids when they're saved? Let's say my kid got saved at three. Should you spank your kid? Yes. Yeah. Until, well, I don't think there's ever a time where you should stop bringing discipline until, of course, maybe they're too old to even be affected by spanking. Because when a child is assuming they're saved, if they sin, you still use discipline combined with their conviction from the Spirit to make them want to obey even more. So you're still encouraging obedience, but you're going to have to, or they're going to become obedient in the things you're disciplining in, dis disciplining them in much faster because they have the Spirit. But you're still commanded to discipline them. It just means it's going to be less time you'll have to spank them because the Spirit will bring them to obedience sooner. Yeah, well, you're, you're able to use scripture to teach them, you know, because a parent who doesn't have scripture, they might try to explain it to their child why it's wrong. But as soon as a child has the spirit, now you can use the word to be the most effective you possibly can to teach them obedience. Um, so, yes, the rod is still important. It's just you're going to have a lot easier time bringing them to obedience when they're saved, you know. Like there's something with Ada we're still working on that, she still does the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, even though she gets spanked every time for this particular behavior. Now, why is it so hard for her to obey? Well, because she's an unbeliever. She's not saved. You know, I mean, talk to any unbeliever. They sin and they reap the consequences and they still do the same thing <laughs> over and over and over again. You know, that's just how sin is. That's, that's the fallen nature. But what Ada is learning, even if she's not obeying now, she is learning that disobedience causes me pain. And if she can take that away from it, that'll help her get saved faster. Which is, it's, still, it's still a really good thing. So, yeah, based on that Numbers verse uh, passage, if a child sins in ignorance, there is mercy, but once he's informed of what he has done wrong, if he does it again, it is intentional and therefore must be punished. We should not treat any form of disobedience lightly, but punish it swiftly. If we love our children, we will discipline them without hesitation. Look at one more proverb. Chapter 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, verse 24. This is a strong, 
Strong passage. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That word for promptly means early, as soon as possible. He who loves him disciplines him as soon as possible. He who spares his rod hates his son. Now, there's a reason why he uses the word hate, why he uses that strong of a word. There's a connection you can read about in 1 John, because 1 John, when he writes about being in light or in darkness or being a believer or an unbeliever, one of the things he says, I believe it's in chapter 3, is that anybody who hates his brother, he says, abides in darkness. How can the love of God abide in a person who hates his brother? He then goes on to say, if you hate your brother, based on what Jesus said, you're a murderer. And no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So Jesus taught this. God teaches through John that hatred is the same as being, ap or the same as the love of God being absent and abiding in darkness. So to spare the rod means in your parenting, you are abiding in darkness. You are without the love of God and you're training your child in darkness. To spare the rod is to hate. To hate is to be without, to be without love. To be without love is to be in darkness and to not have eternal life. So you're, you're keeping your child in condemnation, keeping them in darkness, and keeping love away from them by sparing the rod. As soon as they're able to understand, like, so like Acts 10 says, there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, which of course is the name of Jesus. So if the name by which you're saved is Jesus, that would mean being able to know Jesus as a person that connects you to God. So you just have to think about, okay, how old does a child have to be to understand the existence of a person, the name of a person, and that name being connected to them being able to be obedient, because that's what the gospel saves you into, is the ability to be obedient to God. And I would say, just from what I've seen in other children, two, three years old, because um, now they're, they're, I mean, Ada is old enough to understand people and people's names, right? The connection that hasn't happened yet is, I want to obey mom and dad, but it's really hard. And this name, Jesus, will give me that ability. As soon as she's old enough to get that connection, then she could be saved. So it's just kind of probably up to the parent to notice the intellectual developments in their child that would say, oh, okay, now they're old enough to understand the gospel. But we talk about God with Ada, even though we know she doesn't understand all the concepts. We still use God's name. We use Jesus' name. And Allie says it a lot more than I do because she's at home a lot more, obviously. But she'll say uh, things like, you know, Ada, God says to listen to your parents. God says to honor your father and mother. So she's heard God's name. You know, she's heard Jesus' name. 
And what she is getting is this name that mom and dad are using, God and Jesus, for some reason is connected to me listening. And she understands what listening means very well. Uh, she knows what it means to listen or not to listen. So we're at least sowing the seed that will help her understanding develop later. So you can talk to your children about God and have it benefit their development even before they're old enough to be saved because you're, again, you're preparing them, uh, preparing them to receive Christ. But very young. I mean, we know a little girl three years old who was born again and even had spiritual gifts at three years old. Um, there's a really cool situation where I think she's, is Allie in the room? Oh, she is? Oh, okay. So she probably won't hear me then. But anyway, so uh, Allie told me something really cool. This little girl that we know that she feels compassion for people and prays for people. She started doing that when she was like three years old, four years old. And Allie told me that uh, one time this this little girl, because she knows who I am, um, said to her aunt that she was praying for me to be more nourished in my body and to have healthy food more often and so she told this to her aunt and then her aunt told it to Allie and Allie told it to me and I'm like this and so this little girl didn't know because at that time I was trying to like work on my diet specifically and write stuff down she didn't even know that and she tells her aunt who tells Allie that she's praying for me to do that she's four right so she already has, whether that's discernment or whatever that might be, word of knowledge, we don't know. But that's, that's the gifts of the Spirit in action. She's four years old. And she was doing that when she was three. Okay? So she's obviously three years old. She's plenty old to be able to be saved. You know? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't I wouldn't say speaking word into them but what at least what we know scientifically speaking is that in the womb what what children are aware of is whatever is coursing through uh, the mother's bloodstream so that can be stress hormones it can be joy uh, you know like endorphins and dopamine and um, oxytocin like all those chemicals and hormones that run through your body actually affect a child and exactly so in other words if you if parents mom and dad because both are relevant if mom and dad are walking in good fruit and if they're walking in peace and joy and love that brings into the world a child that's familiar with love and peace and joy and what that feels like because a child can feel joy and they can feel the effects or the stress of anger when they're in the room in the womb because their parents are experiencing it and you don't want your child, you don't want the first emotion they know to be anger or stress when they're in the womb. Because if that's the, what they're familiar with, they start to develop a tendency to go there because that's what they know, right? So even though you know your child's not going to understand words, like you're not going to necessarily speak the word into them, you can speak or impart to them the feeling of walking in the word while they're in the womb. So that they're more familiar with righteousness when they're born into the world. And we don't have necessarily scriptural proof that says that will make your children 
you know, be saved more easily. But at the very least, you're going to be bringing a child into the world that will have a, a, a greater familiarity with righteousness. And that's a really good thing, you know. It can. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's physical, yeah, physical consequences. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 That the Bible says was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, so that that's obviously a very unique situation because God doesn't hasn't let anybody any other child have the Spirit from the, before they're able to have faith. But John had the Spirit while he was in the womb, and when Mary showed up at Elizabeth's house, it says that John, as a babe, leapt within her mother's womb. Right when he heard or felt probably that Jesus with Mary, of course, walked into the womb, into the room. Um, and that tells you, at least in that situation, that before this baby was born, because he had the spirit, he could feel and discern when the spirit was with someone else. And so it's that way with children when, when they're old enough to have faith. And once a child has the spirit, they can discern and they can sense and they can know when something is right or when something's good because of that ability with the spirit. You know, and that's why you're going to have children like this little girl I'm talking about that is able to know things and pray things and discern things because the spirit gave her that ability, you know. So it's just a really encouraging thing about kids that they can walk in everything adults do, you know, uh, when they're saved, just as a saved adult can. Okay, so here's what we'll conclude with. If you have one takeaway to kind of sum it all up, this is what it is. You need to be diligent to discipline your children. This is how you'll get them saved fastest. That's really what it comes down to. Be diligent to discipline your children. That's how you get them saved fastest. The rod of correction spares a child from condemnation. Sparing the rod of correction will easily keep a child under condemnation. That's how important spanking is. This isn't like an optional parenting preference. This is like, it's literally life and death for a child if you spare the rod or not. And if you do spare the rod, you know, like Proverbs says, that means you actually hate your child and it's going to be a lot more difficult to get him saved, at least at a young age, if you spare the rod. So, spank your kids. Yep. Mm-hmm. Say that again? It does not. It says, yeah, it just says rod. Um, but it, it even uses the word like where it says, you know, if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You'll beat him in a rod and deliver his soul from hell. So it specifically uses, uses the word beating, which basically means this isn't like a little tap that hardly hurts. Like it's supposed to be enough that it, it hurts. It's painful. You know, um, I don't even know exactly how it started for people to just think that you spank on the bum, but it works. And Ada doesn't like it, you know, so, <laughs> you know, yeah. And you're also less likely to, you know, bruise because if you, hit, you know, hit a bone and there's bruising and, you know, and all that stuff. So, like, you probably don't want that 
visible on your children, you know. It's covered up, yeah. I would say that's probably a good thing, yeah. I mean, the Bible specifies rod, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, so that, you know, not to use your hand when you spank. I would say that's consistent with Scripture because it says to use a rod, and psychologically speaking, that you say you can cause your child to become afraid of your hand or to be afraid to be touched by you if you always use your hand to spank them. So I would say that, I mean, psychologically, they say that that's true. I think I would agree with that. And that's consistent with Scripture. It says to use a rod, you know. And it is a good thing for Ada to know, you know, when mom or dad picks up this rod, I know what's going to happen. And you want her to feel that. That's a good thing. You know, you want a child to feel that that fear of the rod. You know, it's just like the fear of God for them. So. The board, of, the board of Education. Yeah. So, there we go. Any final questions? Gasps. I just have a discussion. Sure.